Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. So uh, last time we just finished up with some of the chronology and I hadn't talked too much about uh, the collapses because I wanted to save them for today. Um, but first we're going to really briefly run through just some of the general generic cultural components and you have to understand that you know, we're looking at 3,000 years of history, and I'm compressing it all into, you know, a slide or two about the religion or war or writing. So you have to remember that they weren't static. This is 3,000 years of cultural change and evolution. So many of these things may existed by the end, but may not have existed at the beginning. Um, and they evolved, changed, became more complicated, or disappeared over time. So this is kind of a very macro view of these different things. Ryan, wait. No. Okay, yeah. Um, I emailed your, uh, it's back to you, I think. You had emailed it to me, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, religion and worldview. Um, the main thing that I would just briefly I'm going to mention is a pretty pessimistic sort of religious sort of group, I guess you'd say. Um, the afterlife was pretty gloomy and dark. No matter your earthly life, your afterlife was going to be kind of eh, nothing to really look forward to uh, unless you were a ruler uh, or a ruler's servant. Um, so I mention this just because there are some instances of uh, servants who are killed and buried with their masters. Um, and if, on, if I just presented that on the surface, you might think, oh, that kind of sucks. Your butler gets killed when you die. Uh, that's not cool. Uh, but if you consider the idea that the only way you can get to a heaven equivalent, right, like the good afterlife, is to go as a servant with your uh, royal ruler, then probably a good, a good deal, cosmic deal, right, if that's what happens to you after you die. Um, I've never read uh, Terry Pratchett's Discworld series. He's a British sci-fi writer. Um, and in this world that he lives in, when you die, death comes and kills you, and then you go off to whatever afterlife you believe in, um, which I think is a pretty nice, culturally judgment-free way to think about it. If you believe that after you die, you just become worm food, there you go. If you are a Viking and you believe after you die, you go to the banquet hall in the sky where you're constantly drinking from a bottomless you know, goblet, there you go. You know, whatever you believe in for your afterlife, that's what it is. Like, all right, I, I can get behind that. Uh, so if you were a Mesopotamian and you died in Terry Pratchett's world, you would probably go to a rather gloomy, humdrum place that wouldn't be very exciting. So dream big and when it comes to your afterlife. Uh, war, war was um, generally waged in the name of a patron deity. Each city had kind of like, like we have mascots for different... Uh, uh, schools. Uh, the mascot of your town, the godly mascot of your town would be kind of your uh, 
your figurehead, and you would go to war in their name. Now, just like today, it's very likely that uh, war was waged for, I guess what you call realpolitik, uh, or for earthly reasons, right? Hey, those guys called my, my mom a name, or uh, those guys are encroaching on our land, more likely, or those guys are bogarting a very important source of iron, or those guys are most likely in Mesopotamia, those guys up river of us are diverting off too much water. We don't have enough water to water our crops. Let's go to war. But they might cook up a pretense or a pretext, either one, uh, from their patron deity. Oh, our god has spoken. They need to be smited. So let's go, right? Just like, you know, certainly that doesn't happen today anymore. We don't go to war for anything other than the stated reasons. No further comment from me. Um, so the, usually uh, the winner of a war, it was seen to be because they were going to war on behalf or with the backing of a deity, whoever won, that was like the right outcome according to uh, the gods, and therefore it had to be um, adhered to. Uh, this is one of the reasons cities had walls, was because of the pervasive small-scale warfare going on. Slings, bows, and arrows, shields, helmets, and chariots were all employed, although chariots weren't until later. So you can see some local depictions here. And remember I noted the donkeys, as the donkeys were the primary uh, beasts of, of pulling chariots. Uh, they have these tassels on the front of them. You'll see them again, and they're riding over people. And these would have been the tanks of their day, right? You have the foot soldiers who would have been like the foot soldiers of their day, but the chariots would have been the tank, right? They are wheeled. They're four wheels, not two, like they are in um, other places like Egypt and later. Um, and I think Persian uh, also had two-wheeled chariots, but I'm not 100% on that. Uh, but they would have had one driver and one archer or javelin thrower, so they would have been kind of like a mobile artillery unit uh, on the back of a, of a chariot. And you can see here the cute little donkeys. It looks kind of funny because you expect to see horses, right? Uh, but these little donkeys with their um, protective sorts of uh, uh, fringe here and your, uh, your driver, right? Note the big wheels of solid, uh, solid wood. Uh, and again, the walled cities. Uh, were in, in response to warfare. Note also that we're not talking about border walls. It's not like there's a city. Get my marker out here. It's not like we have a city in the center and a city over here, and these two are at war, so they make a border wall between them. Nope. They had walls around the city, and so the enemy was generally free to maneuver around that uh, around that outer, outward plane, and it kind of sucks if you're a farmer right outside of the city wall because you're probably going to get uh, trampled, if, or your, at least your crops and things like that could be a problem. Writing, um, this is one of the earliest places writing existed in the ancient world. Um, as far as we know, it was the earliest writing, um, and it was developed for, as far as we can tell, administrative purposes. Um, eventually, it moves on. Remember I said that writing is generally devised for either economic records or religious records. Um, in this case, it was economic. Uh, it looks like in Egypt, at least much of what we have recorded is, um, is religious. 
most of the texts are just accounts. They're, you know, the spreadsheets. Uh, and if you think accounting now is boring, you know, think about uh, a trade for, you know, bags of grain for a couple of, uh, of donkeys 3,000 years ago, right? Um, no, I'm just kidding. It, it, is, um, it is nice to get into the minutiae, but it is minutiae. Uh, a lot of detail uh, that isn't necessarily as exciting. Um, now, there is hot debate among uh, people who study ancient writing about how it started in this instance. These are tokens that uh, pre predated writing. And it's thought that they started out with these tokens and they used them kind of as receipts. So, you know, uh, I sell you three sheep, you give me three tokens, that way I can remember and I give you like the three grain bag tokens, right, for the exchange. And it's a way of kind of accounting with basically counting marbles or something like that, right? And the idea was um, we can put all these together in a, um, an envelope, right? You make like a clay ball, you put them in the middle, you close that around. These are fired clay, so um, all you'd have to do is get the thing wet and you could take them out and they'd be intact. And like in three years when you say, I sold you five uh, sheep, and I say, no, you only showed me, sold me three sheep, we could open up the little envelope and say, oh, see, three sheep, I was right. Um, or not. <laughs> and uh, then they thought, well, we have these things on the inside. Why don't I make my ball with those on the inside? And then I'll take you know, this sign, which might mean sheep. And if I have three sheep in there, I just go one, two, three, three sheep. Now I already know it's in there. I don't have to open it up. Well, and then you further abstract that. Well, what if we just stamp three sheep on the outside and keep the ball and have nothing on the inside? Well, and then why don't we flatten it out? And then you have a flat tablet with the stamps for the sheep. There's your receipt without these in there, but you can see where that might have evolved into writing. Sounds plausible. Will we ever know if that's exactly how it happened? No. Um, the person that I first learned about ancient writing from, uh, Paul Zemansky uh, at Boston University, who was like totally a CIA spy, even though he wouldn't admit it. Probably shouldn't say this and get recorded in the CIA. The NSA will hear it. Uh, no. So. His father was a code breaker at Bletchley Park in World War II that broke the German Enigma uh, code. And then he was in the army, and he did stuff with linguistics. He was stationed all over right after the war in Iraq started in the early 2000s. He took a leave of absence from school and was in Iraq. And he says he was doing some stuff. We don't really believe him. We think he was off doing crazy CIA stuff. A lot of archaeologists work for CIA because uh, they are in foreign countries with photography equipment, with mapping equipment, with local language knowledge, with local contacts. And they have a real reason for being there. You don't have to invent a reason. They're already there. So uh, there's a fair number of archaeologists who have worked for the CIA um, or the OSS before the CIA existed. Neither here nor there. But Paul Zemansky hotly refutes that, uh, that idea of um, how writing started. Um, and he'll probably be mad because his exact hypothesis escapes me. Ooh, don't tell. Um, I find the other one is reasonable, um, but again, without evidence to prove it one way or the other, we can't slam dunk arguments. So here's one of, here's perhaps one of those balls um, with the things on the inside, and then a seal. Uh, remember those cylinder seals on the outside also could mark uh, what what was in there. So again, cylinder seals. Uh, this might be one of the ways that writing started. Um, 
So these are rolled out, but they're round cylinders, kind of like a, a spool of thread that you would roll across wet clay, and this would be the impression left. And it would be a, a way to uh, put your seal on something. Again, it's like an envelope. You can't stop somebody from opening it, but you can know it's tamper-resistant, right? And it's possible that symbols related to this um, became abstracted into writing, perhaps. Uh, there were many different languages represented, um, and sometimes they invented a new writing system. Sometimes they used an old writing system and just adapted it like we did with English. Our um, writing system is based on the Roman writing system, which is based on the Etruscan writing system, based on the Greek writing system, based on the Phoenician writing system, based on the Proto-Sinitic writing system, based on Egyptian hieroglyphics. So, uh, or you could just invent something completely new, like happened in um, in the in Asia or in the Maya area. Those are complete new inventions. Okay, um, clothing and jewelry commoners they wore wool and tunics and probably weren't super duper fancy. Um, elites uh, had a wider variety of clothing. Here we see some elites, um, even though they're doing agricultural work. You can tell they're kind of fancy because they have, they're wearing an off-the-shoulder number, which uh, was only worn by elites. Um, tunics, usually uh, ancient societies, Mesopotamia included, would have what are called sumptuary laws. I put my pen. Sumptuary laws. S-U-M-P-T-U-A-R-Y, sumptuary laws, meaning uh, you could only wear or possess um, certain things if you were of the correct class. It would be, for example, if we had these laws, um, you could only have a Gucci handbag if you were making over $100,000 a year or your family was worth X millions of dollars or whatever, um, uh, if we wanted to use a straight money differentiation. If, or we could just say you can't have a Gucci handbag unless you're in the upper class. And these would be like laws. Like if you were caught faking it, you would be in trouble. You could uh, be punished. So there were actual rules that were enforced. Because a lot of times uh, when society was divided so strictly, you couldn't interact or intermarry or there were laws against cavorting with people of another class because that just wasn't done. And so if you were presenting yourself as someone from a different class, you could get in trouble um, for potentially subverting social systems. So look out. Um, necklaces, earrings, nose rings, armlets, bracelets, others were worn by both men and women. So all kinds of different jewelry, often made of metals that were mined and created um, both locally and from abroad. Um, Silver, bronze, and gold were really common precious metals. Uh, they also had stones like lapis lazuli or uh, worked shell, right? The inside of shells are sometimes that iridescent color. Um, jasper, rock crystals, all kinds of um, shiny things and, and, and neat rocks. But pretty inventive and, and really kind of beautiful uh, jewelry, very intricate. Um, you can see here a necklace with both uh, lapis lazuli stone and gold leaf 
Interestingly here, gold was more valuable than silver, but in Egypt it was the reverse. We'll talk about why that was when we get to Egypt. Transportation was slow. Um, boats were by far the most efficient means of transportation. Um, as we talked about with the ancient Maya, moving things by boats was the most effective way that one person could move a lot of stuff because you don't have to lift it or carry it and there's very little friction. The downside for Mesopotamia is that if we look at the map, the Tigris and the Euphrates flow the same way that the predominant wind is. So unlike Egypt, where you can float down the Nile and then put up sails and sail against the current up the Nile, great. Here, all you could do is float down the, the Euphrates, or Euphrates or the Tigris, and then you're stuck. You had to walk back up or have your boat pulled by teams of oxen on either side of the, the canal pulling it up. So a lot of times boats were shipped down from areas with lots of wood, and then they were disassembled, and the wood was used in houses and things like that. And they just built a new boat farther up north and then shipped it down. So it's kind of a one-way process. Um, as long as the wood was used, it wasn't a complete waste, but still, you couldn't uh, develop uh, very expensive ships if you're just going to disassemble them. But still a, a very vital, uh, useful type of conveyance. Also around the cities, um, people would use the ships to bring their grain harvest to the town and back because they had all the canal systems, so it worked out really well. Um, and here we have a bit of a, a fancy boat made out of reeds. The reeds were really common in the southern area, um, the marsh. If, if you're ever interested, uh, Google marsh Arabs. Um, they're, a, well, they're a minority that was persecuted under Saddam Hussein, but they live in these really elaborate woven um, reed houses in southern Iraq. Still to this day, they're dying out, but they would have probably been the ones responsible for building these really incredible reed boats. I tried to build one when I was a kid but I didn't have the patience. Uh, then, of course, we have donkeys and uh, chariots and carts and things like that. That would have been also been used, although these would have been avoided because you can go it's like 50 times farther on a boat for the same price as um, a donkey cart. Camels uh, didn't come until later, even though we think of camels as kind of part and parcel of the Middle East today. They're kind of the emblematic animal of the area, uh, even though they're originally Arctic animals. Uh, they weren't around until about the 800s BCE, and they were brought in by the Arab tribes from the desert that had domesticated them. Um, they had quite a lot of, cra and by crafts, I don't mean just like, like my, my uh, stepmother who makes all kinds of holiday cards, I mean like, uh, professional people, craft specialists we call them, people who make pottery for their living, people who make clothing for their living, right? These are craft specialists. Um, quite a, a diversity of them existed. Um, weaving would have been a big one. Um, potters, uh, even woodcutters, stonecutters, uh, metalwork, uh, artisans. They even had um, glass blowing. Uh, also here we have some pots. But even glass was um, blown by the end, by the end of uh, the time period we're talking about from Mesopotamia. Even butchery and other um, more trades type things were, were all practiced and uh, a big part of the economy 
uh, even though farmers probably made up 90% of the population. So 90% of people were farmers or in a farming family. Uh, that means 10% of the people were either craft specialists or elites and you know, rulers or priests or something like that. So that's a pretty, bit, pretty different um, distribution than we have today, where we still have a few elites, but that's kind of reversed now. We have most people are craft specialists, and most of you will probably go on to do something that is not farming. Um, so you'll probably be doing some sort of service, uh, either a service job or a fine uh, handicraft sort of thing. And uh, you can see that the trade routes uh, were pretty prolific. Um, so much of the metals and uh, precious stones and things were up in the mountains that kind of surround the Middle East. Um, and a, much of that had to be shipped in. There really wasn't much in the actual valley. Um, and people had to then, excuse me, create something to trade. Um, so they would, you know, um, you can see, excuse me, the only dots here are bitumen, right? That would have been tar for tarring your roof. So there weren't a lot of uh, trade goods in the valley itself. So they had to make products to trade rather than rely on mining or manufacturing. Okay, so let's focus a little bit on agriculture. I've kind of skimmed over it a couple times, but agriculture is what I want to focus on because it is one of the important uh, features, not the straw that broke the camel's back, uh, or if it was the straw that broke the camel's back, we can't forget that it has a lot of other straws on its back before it breaks, right? So. Uh, is one of the precipitating factors to many of the collapses that we've uh, briefly touched on. So it was one of the earliest agricultural places in the world. Um, most of the, the big mm, crops were wheat and barley, uh, although they had spelt and oats and uh, basically all those. When you think of a hearty grain, other than say quinoa or corn uh, or soy, or rice. It was probably a Mesopotamian cultigen um, or uh, domesticate because um, as our society is largely um, a remnant of European uh, world domination, uh, a lot of the foods are from a European type diet and the European diet is exactly from Mesopotamia. What they did was they, here's Mesopotamia, they just marched up north, up through um, Greece and Italy and uh, you know Spain and then farther up into the uh, into Europe. It's just Mesopotamian foods that were brought. Um, onions, onions were hugely. They had like onion festivals and garlic and leeks. They were really into those uh, marshy type plants. And again, they followed the transmission of agriculture up into Europe. So. Uh, bread and beer, again, also transmitted to Europe, were huge. Um, they were pervasive foods. They were made uh, from grains. Uh, they're a good way to break down wheat and barley because you can't just eat barley seeds or wheat seeds. You have to grind them open, and there's two basic things you can do with it then. You can either make beer or you can make bread, and the process to make beer and bread are pretty similar. You break open the grain, you grind it up, you mix it with some water, some more water than others. You mix it with a yeast. The yeast eats the, the starches and sugars. 
in the grain, and you have uh, either a leaven and bread that you bake, and there's no alcohol left, or you have beer where there is alcohol left, and that helps keep the um, nasty bugs off because they can't stand the alcohol. So Mesopotamian agriculture was just a exaggeration of the natural flooding phenomenon every spring, uh, the, or every monsoon season, I should say. The uh, floodwaters would come and spread over the land, depositing both uh, nutrients and moisture into the soil, and then the grasses would spring up and be really prolific. They saw this happening and they said, well, how can we ensure that the flood comes? How can we control it so we don't get flooded out ourselves? Um, and, that's, and that's basically what they tried to do. Irrigation was the um, hallmark of Mesopotamia. If there was, for the ancient Maya, we often think of uh, milpa, or the, the slash and burn agriculture with the three sisters, the corn, beans, and squash. In Mesopotamia, you think of canals and irrigation farming. It is the most salient feature. Uh, it is, without that, you don't have Mesopotamian agriculture. You can get rid of wheat and still have it. You can get rid of barley or the sheep, goats, pigs uh, individually, and they're not going to make a difference. But the agriculture or the, the irrigation itself was really important. Um, they used all kinds of things like uh, wells in the north um, and pulleys and other uh, and buckets and things in the north, which was much drier uh, to get at the water table. But in the south, they used canals, canals that were regulated or the, the water flow was regulated by sluice gates, which is just kind of a, a door that would open and let water through. Um, and canals, they look mm, kind of innocuous, right? It's just a, basically an artificial river. But they were feats of engineering that were perfected through trial and error. So if you have a canal, and we're looking at it from the side now, and you make it too steep, the water will run too fast and when it hits a curve, it will, now we're looking from the top, if you have a curve in your canal and it's running too fast, it will eat out the side of the canal and bust it and probably go into somebody's field, wasting water and destroying their crops. So you have to have the right slope. You have to have corners that are properly formatted. Uh, if you go too slow, that is your slope is too flat, uh, a lot of soil and all the you think of a muddy river that has a lot of soil in it, if you were to scoop it up in a jar and set it on a table, you would see all that sediment fall out to the bottom. Well, that's what happens when it flows too slowly. All the sediment builds up on the bottom, and then your canal fills up. Uh, even at the best engineered canals would still fill up with sediment, and every year on the off season when they weren't irrigating and it wasn't uh, a really wet season, they would stop the flow in some of the, of the canals and go in and dig them all up uh, and, and, and excavate them out. Uh, this organization to create this interconnected web of canals is one of the arguments, um, like hydraulic, um, hydraulic organization, um, it was thought that this organization gave rise to stratified societies and rulership because it would take somebody, the argument goes, uh, to organize society to build these things. They wouldn't just happen organically. 
there's some debate about that. Uh, communities certainly could band together and decide to do these things and elect a, uh, a project leader and things like that certainly could happen. Um, but the thought that there was centralized planning lent itself to then um, later hierarchical organizations. Let's see. Um, every year, uh, seasonal flooding was harnished. It would replenish the soil, like I mentioned. Um, throughout the growing season, they would flood it, right? They would let the land start to dry, and then they would flood it again, and let it dry and flood it again, you know, three or four times throughout the growing season to make sure um, that in addition to rain, the crops had plenty of, of water. Um, all right. That's pretty much all I have for canals. All right, so we have three collapses, and I'm going to talk about the third one most in depth. The first collapse happened between the aceramic and the ceramic period, so about 7,000 years before the Common Era. This coincides with a period of increased aridity. And remember, these were the people that were just transitioning from like the first villages, the round houses, into formal towns with square buildings and larger populations. So they were just learning how to be um, sedentary. And I don't think I mentioned um, in our debate about sedentism, we didn't talk anything about uh, waste, human waste. Um, when you become sedentary, you have to poop. Uh, you have to if you're a hunter-gatherer, but you're moving every day, so it's not a big deal. You leave it behind, and there are so few people anyway that it's dispersed in the, uh, in the environment, and it doesn't cause problems of you know, getting sick from being in contact with other humans' poo. But in a city, if you're living in the same house for 20, 30 years, and you have neighbors, well, you got to go, right? And so uh, before there was germ theory, people might have pooped wherever. Uh, they probably certainly had outhouses or a designated spot for pooping just because, you know, it smells. Um, and it's not necessarily something that is super uh, attractive uh, to hang out with. But even still, if it was near the river and then it flows into the river and then everyone gets sick and they wouldn't know why, right? There was a steep learning curve when people became sedentary um, and they had to learn to pick up after themselves in terms of their, their poo. And this is not uh, unique to Mesopotamia or early agricultural societies. Um, in the 1930s, the Soviets um, gave reindeer herders in Siberia houses. And they said, all right, you guys have been living in the Stone Age, basically. We are going to bring you into the modern world. We're going to give you houses. We're going to give you jobs. Uh, we're going to, you know, get you on the track to being modern people. <laughs> well, they didn't really uh, have the social uh, practices necessary to live in one place, and there, a lot of people would get sick from um, sanitary, unsanitary conditions. Because for them, they were living, number one, in usually below freezing temperatures all the time, which freezes a lot of the bacterial um, activity so they wouldn't get sick. Uh, from handling or um, you know unsafe cooking practices or fit, um, you know raw meat or anything like that. So when they moved into these houses and everything's warm, they everyone got sick because they didn't have not through any fault of their own or not they weren't smart enough or whatever. They just didn't have the cultural practice. If your parents didn't teach you 
to wipe properly or wash your hands or do these things, you would get sick all the time too. Like if you didn't grow up learning that stuff, it's not obvious. Uh, so anyway, there was certainly a collapse here. It was in concert with increased aridity, but there were plenty of things going on. And it's likely that the earliest societies were not super resilient uh, in their cities or their, their villages because they hadn't been living in them for a long time. They didn't have the structures in place, likely, to survive. Uh, Uruk collapsed around 3100 BCE. This was, again, also at a time of aridity. Uh, but we also see great topsoil erosion. So if we're thinking about this area, right, there's rivers, and they flow into the ocean. Use the ocean. Uh, if you have uh, a lot of topsoil eroding, right, this is a very recognizable type of soil because it's rich in organics. It has, it's usually, you know, loam rather than clay uh, or sand, right? If you're seeing fans and when they erode, it's just like if you look on Google Earth, if you go to the Mississippi where it drops out after New Orleans, there's like fans of growing sediment on the ocean bottom. And then you can um, put down a soil core, pull it up, and you can look at you know, the erosion, what, what sorts of soils were eroding at what time um, from these rivers. And during this time, there was a lot of topsoil eroding, suggesting poor agricultural management practices uh, because you don't want to lose your topsoil. Topsoil is the lifeblood of farming uh, then and now. In US history, I'm sure you learned about the Great Dust Bowl where things got too dry and then people lost like feet of topsoil, just blew away. Yeah, big problem. So uh, the increased aridity likely made that topsoil more likely to be washed away. Um, if you've ever, <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever noticed, but when it's really dry out and then you have a rain, the topsoil is more likely to be washed away. Whereas if it's damp, it will absorb um, that moisture better, like a sponge. Um, I was just planting seeds yesterday for my garden uh, inside in little planters. And I remember that my friend gave me the advice, you spray it first with a mister before you water it because that makes it slightly moist. Otherwise, if you just pour the water on top, the seeds get all discombobulated and moved around and sunk deeper and whatever. It's really distressing for them. But if you mist them first, same thing here. You have to mist it before you deluge. All right, the big collapse is the Akkadian collapse between uh, 2200 and 1900 BCE. Uh, this is, again, connected with a well-recognized change in precipitation around this time. And these three times weren't the only times that there were changes in precipitation or that there were droughts. These were just three collapses that happened to be also happening at the same time as, um, as droughts. And they certainly were related but one doesn't cause the other. You could say all three collapses occurred at the same time as a, as a drought-type event, but not all drought-type events precipitated a collapse, and pun intended, I guess, on the precipitated. Um, about 20 to 30% less rain than usual happened in, these, in this time period, um, and we can confirm this through ice rings uh, or ice... Um, the ice layers, tree rings, speleothems. Speleothems are 
Oh, I know someone here remembers. Um, stalactites, right, from the top? Tight to the ceiling. Stalactites are the speleothems showing um, this drop in rain. Um, and even pollen, we can see the different types of wild and domesticated plants that were or were not thriving at this time. So the big problem with the Acadian collapse, though, is the salinization of fields. And this is probably the number one argument. If you look at the historical trajectory of arguments for the collapse of Mesopotamia, salinity of fields is up there with like the most classic reason. And again, this is not just one thing that, ca that caused the whole collapse, but it's one important factor among many. So you have soil. And every year you flood it. And the water soaks into the soil. But uh, a lot of that also evaporates off the soil. You have to remember that this water originally rained in the mountains. When it rains in the mountains, it erodes the mountains. And mountains not only have sediment, uh, things like sand or um, geologic material, they also have salts. And so the salt, uh, even though it's fresh water, it has a little bit of salt in it, just a little bit, a little bit. And so when you bring this water in with a little bit of salt and it either soaks through or evaporates, that salt doesn't evaporate. It stays in the soil. So every year when you bring in more water and more water and more water, you're building up your salt level. Just a little bit each year you add, you know, uh, 1% or not even that 0.1% salt every year over 20 or 30 years, and you have 3% salt in your soil. So they realized that this was happening, because you can see the salt on the surface. It's white, and it you know, starts to cake up a little bit. And so what they would do is they would flush the, um, they would try and flush it out by putting a lot of water in, and then that would just push all the water down and through into the water table and flush it out. And that would work to some extent, but there's a limit to how much you can flush it out, and even then you're bringing salt in. And if it, you had a drought, the salts that got pushed down could be pulled to the surface by capillary action, where water is drawn up to the surface. And as it evaporates, it creates negative pressure. And it pulls more up. And this salt-heavy water that was pushed down below the growing zone would be pulled back up. So that sucks. We can see that they knew that this was happening because they switched from wheat to barley. Barley is more salt tolerant. And so, you know, they could grow different crops that would, that would work for a while. But still, you needed, you, you still weren't growing enough food because salt reduces the capacity of the plants to produce. So what would they do? Well, what would be the smart thing to do? Rather, what would be the smart thing to do if you were a ruler of a village or a town in Mesopotamia at this time? Kill everybody so you have a smaller population. <laughs> so some people say today we need a smaller population, just go back to hunter-gatherer. Any ideas? Would it be to do more of this? <laughs> no. Uh, which is essentially what they did, um, though. They thought, well, this type of agriculture, remember, irrigation agriculture is the part, and it is the hallmark of 
the type of agriculture that's been going on here for 500 years was irrigation-fed agriculture. So they said, ah, well, this has been working well for a long time. Why don't we just expand it? So they'd build another field. And you know, to some extent, this would help. Hey, another field, but that one would get salty. And this one stays salty. It's hard, once they get salty, it's really hard to get that salt out of there. That's why salting your enemy's field in the Bible was such a bad thing to do because once you get salt in there, you're in trouble, which I find ridiculous that we use so much salt on our roads nowadays because that salt goes somewhere. And every year, and every year, I used to work at this university and every year they just salted. It destroyed my bike, number one. And number two, it would kill like next to the walkways. Like all the grass here would just be dead from the salt. And what would they do? They'd dig it out, they'd put in sod, and then the next year, they'd have to do the same thing because they just salted so much. It was ridiculous. So I'd write them letters and say, use sand, use something else. Salt sparingly, no. Salt is not great for plants. Anyway, so they doubled down, right? Instead of innovating and coming up with perhaps a different agricultural system, not that it may not have been possible, right? They might have just been doomed. But what they did was more of the same rather than coming up with innovations that worked um, because they were blinded by the problem. Now, this is not the only problem that they had. Um, just want to make sure I got everything. Um, oh, yeah, to combat the salinization, they would sometimes grow cover crops. Some plants that are not necessarily grown to eat, but to grow, grown to improve the quality of the soil. Like today, we use clover and alfalfa. Clover especially fixes nitrogen into the soil, and then you just till it back under. Um, so they did things like that. They grow plants that like salt and would absorb the salt. They would um, let fields lie fallow, but eventually you, you run out of fields to let lie fallow, right? You can't get uh, fields that are too far from the canals. Um, and like I said, they would grow barley and other plants. Okay, so we can easily link, remember our our fun link. So we have agriculture uh, relinked to environment, uh, trade, social org, and resilience. So in ancient Mesopotamia, if your excuse me, if your agriculture is collapsing, yeah, obviously uh, the environment might. Uh, how would the environment uh, add to the collapse of agriculture. Mentioned a couple times what conditions were there that made uh, the agricultural collapse more difficult. I just mentioned it. About rain. Drought. Yeah. Lack of rain would obviously negatively impact agriculture. Um, trade. Let's see, how would trade negatively impact agriculture? Harder to say because long distance trade, at least, wouldn't have had to deal with agriculture. They're not, you don't ship wheat across large distances, at least until you get into the Roman times. Um, so for trade, um, you're mostly dealing with local items. Um, how would the, uh, so, so local trade um, might cause the, collapse of agriculture or might be tied up with the collapse of agriculture because it was an environment, it was an agricultural society. Um, even 
before money was invented, right? Everything was barter and everything that was bartered was largely based on the price of agricultural things. So um, trade and agriculture were absolutely tied together. And I draw that tied together. Social organization, how did agriculture support society or the social organization? 90% of the people were farmers, right? And so the other 10%? Elites and, and specialists. So where were they getting their food? From the farmers. Yeah. And then uh, who was organizing the uh, cleaning out of the canals and the organization of bringing in um, the wheat and the, the rations for the temple? The elites, right? So it was kind of a circular thing. They provided social organization, and the 90% uh, farmers provided uh, food to let society run. And resilience. How are you going to react to natural disasters and um, disease, famine, war, and things like that? If your agriculture is failing, not so much, right? If you don't have a lot of food on hand, a famine is going to be a problem. If you don't have a lot of food on hand, warfare increases. If you don't have a lot of food on hand and there's a pandemic and everyone gets sick, who's, you know, how are you going to eat? You won't, right? So resilience and food are very tightly linked. Okay, so those are, they're all linked together. So when, in, when uh, again, I'm just using agriculture in this example because it is the biggest um, of them. So in the three minutes remaining, we can talk really briefly. Okay, in one minute, I'm going to mention why our agricultural system um, may have a fatal flaw in it, and that's uh, the dependence on fossil fuels. Because not just because I hate fossil fuels, but because most of us, if I were to ask you what would happen if fossil fuels disappeared tomorrow, most of you would say my car wouldn't start, might not have as much electricity, whatever. That's true. However. Um, there are factories in China and Houston that make fossil, uh, fossil fuel-based uh, fertilizers. Most of the fertilizers that we overspread on our fields are from factories, not from naturally derived whatever, which is fine. Those are transported by, by 18-wheelers and then dispersed by tractors and then harvested by... Uh, that's a terrible drawing of a combine or something. Harvested uh, all using diesel fuel to both spread uh, the fertilizer and then to harvest, and then they get processed again in factories. And then they get refrigerated, which requires electricity, which a lot of it is from fossil fuels, yada, yada, yada. Everything is dependent on fossil fuels in our agricultural system. So if we were to have a, and that's just one problem. Another problem is monoculture, which is really dangerous because uh, if, Heaven forbid there is a fungus or something that uh, develops a taste for uh, GM soy or regular soy or corn, we are in huge trouble. So uh, we have really doubled down on the monocropping idea, and we've really doubled down on the fossil fuel idea. So if either one of those falters, and causes systemic disruption of our agriculture, um, we could have major uh, environmental problems, although, uh, frankly, the, the environment might rebound a little bit because we're not putting so many um, what do you call it, uh, fertilizers into waterways and things like that. 
But we could also have a drought, and that would bring down ag. And I wonder why we would have a drought if our planet's warming. Uh, trade, obviously, completely linked up with um, the food system, because most of us, when we eat food, right, our average meal travels 1,500 miles until it gets to our plate, meaning uh, if the trade collapses or if agriculture collapses, they're going to be linked together. Social organization, we haven't had large-scale riots in quite a while. I mean, like, real riots, like, where like hundreds of people are getting killed at the palace gate sort of riots. I mean, we've had protests for sure, but they're largely peaceful. When people get hungry, then, they, then there's real riots. Like, we have been well-fed for 50 years. Wait until we're not well-fed. People, it gets real, real, real fast, and people start really getting upset, right? Because you're hangry. The French Revolution was because people were hangry, for, and bread prices rose. Resilience, obviously, if we have problems with any of the monoculture or the fossil fuel inputs to our uh, agricultural system and foods become scarce, we're going to have real trouble if there's natural disasters or anthropogenic disasters, meaning human-caused disasters. Sorry I had to rush through that, but, you know, just to, this would be a good Friday to end on, just to send you off into the weekend with such a happy-go-lucky sort of pro prognostication. Might not happen. Maybe we'll come up with, unlike the Mesopotamians, who couldn't come up with uh, something to get around their monocropping salt, or excuse me, get around their salt problem. Maybe we'll get around our fossil fuel problem. Maybe we'll get around our mon monocrop problem. Maybe, and I certainly hope so. That'd be wonderful. I'm not a doomsday, like I don't want it to happen. I just worry that it will, because nobody seems to care. Okay, but you guys do, because it'll be on the exam. <laughs> Anyway, I hope you all have a uh, nice begin to your week. We'll pick up on Wednesday with, uh, oh, it's technology, I think. Doesn't really matter. Burp, 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 burp. Yeah, technology. So uh, that'll be like fossil fuel. Uh, stuck on it. Pottery and things like that. All right. Have a good start to your week. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share Like License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.